Hey, I have to train these things anyways. Like, you know, this person came in and quote unquote, they're the worst mover I've ever seen. Well, I still have to do stuff. You know what I mean? This person still needs to run, jump, throw and lift. What am I going to do? Uh, it's just going to be the right task for this person. Put them in the right environment to be successful. And, and quite honestly, I haven't seen a movement screen yield any information that I would actually use to change my approach. That was Dr. Pat Davidson speaking on movement screens in context of his approach to training clients and athletes. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the Free Lap Timing System, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The Free Lap Timing System has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 122 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today. Uh, for today's episode, we welcome back Dr. Pat Davidson, he was on about 30 episodes ago, and I recently attended his Thinking the Big Patterns seminar. Uh, that was actually back in August, and it was such a great time, had such good chats with Pat that we agreed that we definitely wanted to do another show, another episode. Uh, for those of you guys who didn't tune in last time to Pat or aren't super familiar with who he is, uh, just a quick uh, recap. He is the Director of Training Methodology and Consulting Education at Peak Performance, New York City, uh, person, very successful personal trainer in New York. He's the author of the popular Mass Training Series. He's been an assistant professor at a few different colleges, a strongman competitor, uh, been involved in the martial arts, overall one of the most intelligent, if not the intelligent, quote-unquote, meathead <laughs> that you would meet, and overall just a really nice guy, too. So anyways, Pat, uh, one of the things, uh, I mean, going through the Rethinking the Big Patterns seminar, one thing that really uh, stuck out and one, one thing I really enjoyed talking with Pat about was how to uh, approach weaknesses and, and how to work with a client without bringing up necessarily things that they're bad at. Coaching and training somebody, giving them the experience they want and need to get better. Uh, I know that if you listen to the Brett Contreras episode, it's very easy to, especially if your job is sports medicine, but even as a trainer as well, and you're trying to distinguish yourself to say, well, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, and here's how I'm going to fix it. And it's good to say this is how I'm going to fix it, but at the same time, the best coaching is as much as is necessary and really nothing more. 
and everything we're trying to say or do on top of what's what's absolutely most effective can actually be detrimental, especially if you only have an hour to spend with somebody. But even in team sports settings, obviously, this has uh, a lot of importance. So Pat is going to talk about how to approach bringing up an athlete's weakness uh, without hurting their natural athleticism in the process. Something that is, honestly, that's coaching. Like that is something you don't learn in college and something that is critically important to the system of getting athletes better. Pat's also going to talk about how much an athlete can improve in triplanar function based off ribcage dynamics. So how much can you improve? Uh, he's going to talk about movement screens in general, uh, a much more expanded version of that teaser you listen to and very insightful on on pat's end and i think that is important to know in this in this field where we have this growth-minded industry and there's all these things out there um, that are are uh, claiming themselves as these important tools for athletes so just how to make good sense of that uh pat's also going to talk on uh, excessive warm-ups and the idea of activating muscles and warm-ups so i got to do monster walks and activate my gluteus medius or whatnot and as always, Pat just has amazing, not only practical insight, but also huge depth of the science and the literature that really gives us a background uh, into each of these topics. And so uh, not just guessing, but really having this full spectrum, holistic view of what is going on in our training program. So uh, with that said, let's get on to episode 122 with Dr. Pat Davidson. Pat, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here, man. Joel, pleasure to have you back, man. It was uh, it was great to meet you in person a couple weeks ago, and uh, really looking forward to this. Yeah, I was I was stoked. That was uh, that rethinking the big patterns was just such a cool seminar. And uh, like I was telling you before, it's like you you had said or someone else like you shouldn't go back to your real life on Monday and and change anything just yet. You know, observe you know just have a better awareness and and but I couldn't help it with one of my teams. I had to be like, okay, I'm gonna take Pat's system and and really really. Um, hit the ground running with this one and yeah it was, it was really cool what, what have you been up to since uh since those two weeks ago we got to uh meet besides shooting mini guns obviously <laughs> yeah well i mean i was i was in vegas for um you know i work with uh ethan grossman who who i've said a number of times is the smartest person in our industry that no one's ever heard of and um so he's getting married next weekend and it was his bachelor party in vegas the weekend after uh, the San Fran rethinking the big patterns. So we had a blast. It wasn't the typical like Vegas bachelor party. Like he was not the easiest person. I'm his, I'm his best man. So it was kind of like uh, trying to plan a bachelor party for this dude is, is not the easiest thing in the world because it would almost be like if, if like uh, if Skynet built a bodybuilding Terminator, like what would that individual want to do for their, for their bachelor party? And, um, you know, it's kind of like, well, I know like he's coming off of competing in three bodybuilding shows in like a month and he's been like starved. So he's going to want to eat. I know he's going to want to lift. And then like he likes adrenaline based things as well. So it was like, well, oddly enough, I think Vegas is kind of the perfect spot. So, you know, we, we crushed buffets and uh, and like, you know, drove like supercars, Lamborghinis, McLarens, shot mini guns drove dune buggies and uh and lifted at some really great gyms out in vegas like uh uh iron addiction ct fletcher's place and and some other spots so it was it was uh it was my kind of a bachelor party too like we didn't do the typical like you know gambling strip club sort of vegas experience that a lot of people would think um but we we did it our way i liked it 
Oh, that sounds like one hell of a bachelor party. I yeah, no, I I, I couldn't agree more. If I was in Vegas, those are exactly the things that I would want to be doing. Um, I don't. I feel like gambling would go really poorly for me really quickly. Uh, and did you did you guys was CT there? Was CT himself there? I didn't even know his gym was in Vegas. Now he wasn't, but uh, I I think that the morning of the same day that we went there, uh, half Thor Bjornsson had lifted there. He was out in Vegas that same weekend for I don't know what, but. Uh, somebody saw a video of him deadlifting like 880 pounds for reps or something like Whoa. that. So, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. You get, you guys could almost have your own little company, like uh Vegas tours for gym bros or something like, or, or something, like, something to that tune or yeah. I think I'm telling you cool. it works, man. Like we ate our faces off. It was like, you know, Brazilian churrascaria, um, heart attack grill with like the 9,900 calorie quadruple bypass. Uh, burger, um, you know, Caesar's Palace buffet. Like if, if you want to like actually just lift, get huge and do like crazy dude things. I mean, it, it works, it works really well. There's, there's, there's a lot of potential there. Oh man, that's, that's really cool. Well, yeah, some things to pitch to the wife in the future. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she'll understand. Oh yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah, I'll show her the minigun clip with the minigun clip and yeah, it, it's in the books. Uh, well, Hey, let's, let's roll on to these questions then. I mean, I, I have so many thoughts running in my head after that seminar a couple of weeks ago on just a few things I wanted to catch up on and follow up on. Um, and the first one is, I mean, something I've thought about for a, a long time, um, the way that you talked about it, I thought was really cool. And just the idea of how should we bring or how should we consider bringing up an athlete's uh, quote unquote weaknesses in light of what mm. we tell them about themselves and how we present that to them. Yeah. So it's, you know, I, I always, you know, this is this is one of those um, answers that that I I like to reference, like where where my thought process comes from for an answer like this, and and quite honestly, it comes from um, the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, and he he talks about this heuristic of negative reinforcement or punishment, and that it doesn't really actually seem to work very well, and he brings up uh, a few examples, but the example that sticks in my mind the most is where he talks about an experiment that the military did where they looked at, um, it was in the Air Force, taking a look at cadets that were doing flight simulation and like uh, fighter, you know, essentially like you're in a simulator and you're, you're fighting against simulated enemy fighters and they can score you on your performance. So typically what happens is the cadet goes in there, they have a poor performance and then their commanding officer yells at them and gives them some kind of negative reinforcement after the fact. And what, what you see statistically is after the uh, commanding officer yells at the cadet who had the bad performance, the next performance is typically better. And it's statistically significantly better. And uh, the military had kind of gotten to this conclusion like, oh, well, look at that. Like uh, punishing them and yelling at them works. It makes their performance better. But what they were able to do is they took the experiment one step farther and they had a control group that did not receive negative reinforcement. They weren't yelled at. And what they noticed is that they had the same amount of numerical improvement after a poor performance as the as the punished group. So like after looking at this, they, they were able to say, you know, it really has nothing to do with um, yelling at them or not yelling at them. It's just the likelihood after a poor performance 
is that the next performance is going to be better because, you know, it, it's just coming back to the mean. Um, and, and if they looked at it the opposite way, um, you know, after a really excellent performance, the next performance tended to be a little bit worse. Um, so they, it, it's just the tendency of individuals is to come back to the mean, especially if you look at it from as big a picture as possible. But it just seems as though there's no point in actually like giving people negative reinforcement. And, um, <clears throat> you know, medically, we're aware of this, this concept of the nocebo, where if you tell someone they have this problem, this medical problem, all of a sudden now they like fully believe they're totally bought into it. It's the opposite. Uh, it's like the bizarro version of the placebo. And <clears throat> so you have to be very careful with what you tell people and how you talk to people. Because you could you could really like um, put something in their head that creates a huge problem for them, and um, you know it's almost like Gabrielle Wolf's commentary on coaching cues as well. Like uh, you know, if I really want to screw up a tennis player, I'll ask them like, "Hey, do you notice what you do with your elbow on a backswing uh, or or a backhand?" And and now they're paying attention to like what their body's doing, and and that's going to throw off like the way that the brain is typically processes information and and sends out motor commands it just totally screws up with the system so to me it's it's kind of like you know i am very hesitant to tell people about things that they're not doing well i really don't mention it and i focus on as many of their positives as i possibly can and i i sort of like brag the athlete up or the client up i just really tell them what a good job they're doing because it seems as though first like negative reinforcement doesn't actually increase performance or lead to positive outcomes. Um, and, and second, even though positive reinforcement may not really matter because things come back to the mean, I think that it makes it a more pleasurable experience for the person to be in a situation where, where the person that's talking to them is telling them good things about themselves. I mean, some people don't like excessive compliments and you have to be careful not to go there. But if you, if you have legitimately good things to say about other humans, I think chances are that the majority of those people are going to like that better than either saying absolutely nothing or saying negative things. So, you know, that's, that's the, the, my main thing. But of course, like we have to also figure out like, what are your limiting factors and are those things changeable? And, and that sort of brings me to like part two of my answer for this, which would delve into uh, the topic of constraints theory or, um, you know, there's the Glazier paper on the grand unifying theory of sports science, which uh, is, again, I like to just reference like where, where do my thought processes come from? Uh, because really almost nothing is, is uniquely your own. Like you, you can't, I'm, I'm just a good thief. So in this, in this Glazier paper, and it's the Newell theory of constraints, um, it, it basically is saying that, uh, you know, the interesting thing with performance is always the limiting, the limiting factor. It's, it's, um, if you can take that limiting factor and adjust it and, or, or remove it, like you're, you're ultimately going to improve performance. And the limiting factors belong to three primary realms. And those are things having to do with the organism, the environment, or the task. Um, and to try to give an example of something that belongs to those three categories, if, if I'm dealing with like an endurance runner, uh, you could say that um, 
you know, glycogen storage in the skeletal muscle would be a constraint of the organism. Um, you could say that like uh, heat and humidity could be a constraint of the environment. And for task, you could say like, is this person running a 5K or a marathon? That would change the, uh, you know, the, the limitations that are involved with this. And, you know, what, what can I change and what can't I change? Well, if the race is scheduled to be run in Death Valley, uh, there's not a lot I can do about that other than to train this individual to be able to become more more well-suited and acclimated for that kind of environment. Um, ultimately, for something like glycogen storage, there seems to be protocols involving uh, carbohydrate restriction and then carbohydrate refueling that exercise science has led us to um, understand are, are the best-case approaches to be able to maximize glycogen storage and skeletal muscle. And in terms of the task, I, I better know if this person is like what distance they're running and how to go about um, coaching this individual on tactics and techniques for, for best capturing the approach that would lead to success within those constraints. And, and the more that you think about uh, whatever demands an athlete has to face, um, you realize that these these limitations and constraints are are the number one the most interesting topic and number two the most useful thing to get into. So, you know, with with rethinking the big patterns, for instance, which is a, a largely a biomechanics driven uh, seminar, it it starts to look at things from the perspective of, hey, what joint motions is this athlete incapable of performing? Like I look at them on the table. And this guy has no femoral IR. What does that mean? It means a lot of things. You know, it's like it means that that this guy probably is going to be limited in like propulsion phase of gait. Like if this person's a someone that, that needs to have maximal sprinting capabilities from a biomechanics perspective, they're going to be limited. Why? Because like femoral IR also corresponds with uh, femoral extension. And if you don't have enough extension, um, you're, you're not going to be able to probably get to like. Uh, big toe, full extension and push off at terminal phase of gait. You know, there's there's just a number of things that, that this can lead to, but ultimately are there techniques that could restore these joint actions for this person? And yes, there are. Um, <clears throat> how do I find out the right technique? Well, I rely on testing, and then I, I actually try to give the exact like pinpoint laser-guided uh, sniper rifle technique to restore the motion that this person's not not capable of showing and then do I have fitness-based activities in the weight room that can build up the capacity and the power that this individual should be able to demonstrate that involve that joint action and again yes there are so it's it, it really <clears throat> to me rethinking the big patterns is a constraints-based seminar from a biomechanics perspective that tries to categorize motions that human beings perform in fitness settings. Um, and then it tries to give you ideas on, you know, what, what are different loads, velocities, and durations that are, you know, that, that people are capable of demonstrating these techniques in. And then ultimately, is there a best case scenario for how to perform activities and if you're not performing the activities up to snuff, is there kind of a troubleshooting checklist to be able to go about changing the way that the person's performing the activity so that you make it closer to optimal?
You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Pat, I really liked how you mentioned uh, the. I really liked how you mentioned with tennis, like you, know, if you want to mess someone up, just say, "Oh, how are you hitting that forehand?" Like you know, I, and uh, I, and one of the things that I've always thought about in training and introducing new things is, and I'm glad you made that link too, because the Inner Game of Tennis has always been one of my my favorite books, and I, I'm glad you made that link between that and then uh, bringing something up in someone's performance program and uh, I, I think that too you mentioned something I'd actually like to expand on this and I think this is the big one this is probably the thing I think about um, almost more than anything now and it's like you know the more you <laughs> the more you know the more you realize you don't know but like what can and can't I change and mm-hmm. I think about that now a lot with like like rib cages and stuff I feel like I'm with athletes a lot I'm looking at I'm looking at an athlete but I'm also looking at a rib cage and I'm thinking okay well you don't have you don't really have a very good frontal plane but I don't know if I should say anything to you about it because I don't know how much <laughs> how much better can you get compared to obviously you know that that um, picture of Barry Sanders with just this insane yeah. lateral cut um, and I know you've even talked about it yourself, how your rib cage is designed to a point where how much are you going to be able to get in this particular motion? I'm sure everyone can improve, but uh, with things like, uh, and, and maybe let's just talk about that. I was going to get into the frontal plane a little bit, but uh, first off, um, how much can people improve in some of these things if you are um, your rib cage and pelvis is designed in a particular way? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that I try to make clear when I teach this thing and when I talk to people that in, in many ways, I think that most people in our industry are searching for answers and I'm looking for better questions because I think that better questions lead to more honesty and, and dialogue and us actually like working together, like through integration, like when you really deal with medical people, uh, you know, it, it, and performance people like like just coming together to actually achieve good results and and um you know i'm never afraid of saying well i don't really know because like like still these topics are things that like like where did i really learn like like truly what a frontal plane is like i learned it through exploration of of taking a lot of pri courses i've learned it through talking with like bill hartman and other people that have come through that ifast lineage I've learned it through like discussions with guys that like are in the Arizona Diamondbacks um, system, kind of coming from like you know Neil Ramp, who who really was the first guy I think in the sports performance world to to like learn about a lot of this stuff and 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 start feeding it to others and that trickle down um, to where now we got a bunch of guys that that are that are studs with with understanding this stuff, but like some of the you know it, it's it's kind of like. Um, I, I learned so much from Doug Kachigian when we were both at peak performance and, um, you know, I've, I've learned so much from, from Ethan Grossman and watching him go about things, Vinnie Brandstatter, who, who I work with now and who I worked with at peak performance. Like I'm surrounded by other people that understand these, these concepts and we have discussions about this stuff, um, you know, on a daily basis or, or when I see some of the other guys that I don't work with on a daily basis from time to time. And, and I think that when we have these discussions, it, it does come down to like we're, we're talking about our experiences and we're talking about what we're seeing. And, and there's just no easy answers with these things. And a lot of them come down to an N equals one situation. It's, it's kind of like with, with rethinking the big patterns. I try to give people a simple, workable, use, like user-friendly model. 
and it's to get you started. And and it should be something that is is it's a powerful model. Like it should get you results and it should help people immediately. But you're you're going to bump into problems along the way with like more difficult cases. And and it's those more difficult cases that lead to better questions and better discussion and and just trying things and seeing kind of like what's working and what's not working. So it's it's one of those ones where with this question, I would love to just be able to say like, oh, there's always this particular answer. And, you know, <clears throat> uh, the, the closest thing I've got to an answer to, to what your question is, and it's it, the question is, if I could kind of reiterate it, so I, I think that I'm on the same page, it's sort of like, you know, how do you how do you know if you can change somebody or how much change does somebody need? The answer is take a look at what this person's goals are and do they have enough motion to be able to execute the movements that they're trying to do for the thing that, you know, that they actually want to do or that they care about. They, they need enough motion, you know, like, uh, like you come from a, a sprinting and jumping background, correct? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like for something like a high jump or a triple jump, there or, or hurdles or something like that, like there's a very specific amounts of joint motion that specific joints need to be able to reach to execute those things. Like, you know, you've probably spent an, um, hours breaking down movements on film and seeing like the greats versus people that aren't as good. And you probably see like certain positions that the greats can get into and the way that their joints are free in certain places. And, and it's like they don't need more than that. They just need that much. You know, I, I, I spent a good amount of time playing baseball, and um, I always think about, like, follow through for pitchers or follow through for batters. And it's like you don't need – you just need enough motion to be able to get into that position. And as long as the person's got enough, they don't need more. But if they don't have enough, it's my job to try to give them enough. And – um and maybe they need a buffer zone. You know, you oftentimes hear about that, like with things like speed reserve or strength reserve or, or endurance reserve. Um, but it, it's kind of like step one is, do they just have enough? And if they do, then then your job is somewhat done from the perspective of, of trying to change motion or change skeletal positions or things like that. Um, and then, then it's kind of like as you're working with people, um, are they capable of actually changing themselves? And, and from, from my experience, from a lot of other people's experience, you know, most people, the majority of people you work with are quite capable of changing their range of motion. They're quite capable of learning new things, but some people are just not very coachable. You know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, the level of coachability of the person that you're working with plays a major factor. The level of connection that you have with them as a, as the coach plays a major factor. Um, and then of course there are people where just, they have literal skeletal, um, uh, limitations that you can't change that are, that are structural changes. And with those kinds of individuals, you're left really with one option, which is typically, uh, up like, a, uh, orthotics. And, um, you know, either you're putting orthotics into their shoes or you're starting to integrate your practice in with a dentist who can use like a, a dental appliance, like an ALF device or a Gelb appliance or something like that. Um, you know, because a lot of like so much of movement, uh, in particular transverse plane of rotation, can be governed by the neck. 
and the, the neck is really governed by the jaw and the jaw is governed by like the shape of the mandible and um, the way that the teeth come together. And it's, it, that, that's where things get super complicated when you start going up there. But if you have a dentist that you can work with, that's capable of integrating and, and understanding like the, the way that the, the bony positions and shapes of that region kind of impact the thorax, uh, then, then all of a sudden, you know, with those people that are truly structurally limited, that hey, you did your best job. They were super coachable. Everything should have come out the way that it should have, uh, the, that you wanted it to, but it just isn't. And you take a look, and like they've got this incredibly narrow palate that's super vaulted, and you're like, oh, that's that's why. Or they've got a crossbite, or a huge overbite, or just something really funky. Um, you know that you you need to take that next step at that point of of actually looking at at you know giving people orthotics because they literally can't change the shape of their skeleton in certain regions that are that are preventing them from being able to uh, move their body into certain positions. Yeah, it's crazy with the the feet and the orthotics. I and I, yeah, I just thought about that a lot. Like, what do you do when when someone is structurally limited like that? I. I Pat, I wanted to talk to you too. I asked you, uh, what's your take? And you highlighted this just a little bit at the seminar, but your take on movement screens in general. So if I'm, you know, have a new client or, or someone I'm working with, um, is there a, a initial assessment? What's your, what's your take there? So I, I don't do anything like an FMS or, or something like that. Like I, I have the table and I, I like the table because there's kinesiology textbooks that have standards for like human norms for things like shoulder flexion, you know, humeral IR, ER, femoral IR, ER, femoral flexion extension. The, those things are, are fairly standardized and, and they're objective. And I can measure them with tools like goniometers or dart fish with, with uh, you know, computer angles that can be drawn on there. And um, I just look at it like, the table doesn't really lie. You know, people can trick you in so many ways when they stand up. They can compensate in a million ways. But for the most part, if I if I really understand the table and human norms, um, I can have a fairly standardized objective view of your potential. Because the table to me is your potential. Uh, and, and if you kind of meet most of the standards for human movement and you're you're not like in one extreme or the other in terms of like hypomobile or hypermobile. Now, now I can basically enter you into what I would just call motor learning 101. Like I can teach you skills that you would need to have to improve fitness qualities. Cause I mean, my job is to improve fitness qualities in people, strength, speed, power, endurance, the, you know, just these basic sorts of things. And to improve those fitness qualities, I have my sort of basic basic fitness movements, which are, you know, when, when you think about the weight room, <clears throat> you think about typical, typical things, knee dominant, hip dominant, horizontal pushing, pulling, triple extension, vertical pushing, pulling, core activities, um, locomotion, triple extent. Like I've, I've got these, these things that we all sort of do. And, um, <clears throat> if this person sort of cleared the table, they, they should be able to learn these tasks, but it comes down to to good old fashioned coaching and, and also just motor learning and development from the client. Um, they haven't, they had like, just because you have appropriate amounts of, of, uh, of, of femoral extension 
doesn't mean that you're going to finish a deadlift at the top appropriately. Like you still have to learn how to do this thing. Um, you know, and, and I, I would just simply, <clears throat> I try to give people like choices of activities that are the easiest ones to coach these patterns in for people. Like I would say that if you're thinking about a two foot hip dominant activity, like essentially something that would fall into like deadlift family of exercises, probably the easiest one that people won't screw up with their axial skeleton is a cable pull through. Um, it's just the hardest one to screw up. The, the load is behind you. You probably are going to rely on femoral extension as opposed to just kind of cranking your lumbar spine into extreme amounts of lordosis and arching and, and just doing funky things that you don't want people to do. And then I would just progress them intelligently to probably like a kettlebell deadlift where I can, again, like I'm, I'm controlling the task. I would just simply start the person with the kettlebell back. Like the, the horn of the kettlebell should basically be lined up with where the medial malleolus of the ankle is. Uh, and that way I just ensure that the person is reaching backwards and they're probably going to position their rib cage in a really good spot and their pelvis in a good spot. Um, I'm not going to start them off with like a barbell snatch grip deadlift. Um, you know, you just, you have to be smart with the way that you introduce the right task for motor learning to, to progress as easily as possible for that person to understand the concept as best they can. Uh, and once they understand the concept and they're proficient with it, now I can give them just about any implement and they're going to execute the, the memory of the, of the idealized pattern that you're trying to train. Um, so it's like, I would say that's, that's really why I don't do a, 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 a conventional model uh, movement screen that's sort of being sold to people uh, because like it's it's almost like almost every trainer or coach knows like the goblet squat's going to be your best friend like oh I have this person that was like a train wreck in the FMS deep squat test but I put a kettlebell in their hands in front of them and all of a sudden they look really good you know why why is that or I've seen it with like Olympic like like really good competitive Olympic weightlifters where you take their shoes off, like Olympic lifting shoes, put them barefoot, have them do an FMS deep squat test, and they look god-awful, like like the worst thing you've ever seen in the world, but put their Olympic shoes on and a barbell with like 300 pounds on, and they're in a perfect overhead squat position because the task is different, you know? The Or, or e even in that circumstances, it's, it's really the environment, like uh, the implements that you're giving them. Uh, I would just, you know, I'm, I'm always like, Hey, I have to train these things anyways. Like, you know, this person came in and quote unquote, they're the worst mover I've ever seen. Well, I still have to do stuff. You know what I mean? This person still needs to run, jump, throw and lift. What am I going to do? Uh, it's just going to be the right task for this person. Put them in the right environment to be successful. And, and quite honestly, I haven't seen a movement screen yield any information that I would actually use to change my approach. You know, so I think that it's what what's good about something like an FMS is it got us thinking about from a categorical perspective. You know, this person's not the most competent mover I've ever seen in my life. And based on that, I probably should do specific things to try to help them understand movement a little better and understand their body a little bit better. This person is in dire need of this. And and this person might need some different things than this other person. Um, and, and also it might get me thinking along the lines of like, I need remedial exercises for this person, but 
you know, it, quite honestly, for me, I don't, I don't need a, a movement screen to, to do that. If I see like a, a 14 year old kid that, that doesn't really understand their body, I'm, I'm not teaching them or, or day one isn't going to be like, you know, snatch balances and pistol squats. It's, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's probably going to be this very standardized, easy thing of like, Hey, my horizontal push is probably going to be some sort of very regressed bench press or some kind of an incline push up. Uh, so it's, it's just, um, I think that also if you work in a facility where you're kind of a head guy and you've got like 20 assistant coaches and 40 interns under you, you need to have a systematic approach and any system is better than no system. So if, if that's what you're working with and you have everybody speaking the same language and there's tremendous buy-in, that's incredibly useful. Um, you know, it's, it's very similar to the way that rethinking the big pattern starts off with all models are wrong, but some models are useful. And, and that's your best case scenario is, is how useful can your model actually be? Um, I'm trying to get closer to biomechanical truth, reproducibility with, with this rethinking the big patterns concept. But, but as you saw, like there is no actual movement screen for it. Um, it's, it's literally just, here's what things actually are. Here's what a frontal plane is. And, and here's how you have to coach it. Um, and, and if the person can't do these things, well, then they're missing this other thing. They're missing a sagittal plane. And you have to go back to the, to the foundation and actually start with this person there. But it's, it's not like, um, you know, a uh, straight leg raise test is going to yield some kind of magic answers for you that uh, will, will really cause, like, this, this dramatic difference in the way that you coach things. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Oh, yeah. I, I almost think that you could even categorize movement screens themselves. You could really call many of them just skill screens. Like, it's here's a skill. But like you yep. said, like the position is almost your, your joint movement potential is almost a separate entity. And I, I think it's really cool how you've, kind of, you've put that together and... I, I am a believer that if you have the potential to do something and the intent is strongly there, and some people are better at getting there than others, but eventually you'll you'll get to the direction you need to go, at least to the best of your abilities and skill. You know, yeah, like a like a hurdle step over or whatever. I don't even I don't even know the ones in the FMS, which is sad. But uh, and I also do agree with you though that there should be some screen in place in a large organization. I definitely get that, but I definitely think that. The, the position and skill are two very, or the um, potential and skill are definitely two very separate components that people maybe don't think about that often. Yeah, I just think as an industry, we got sold this very compelling story about the FMS. And, you know, it just hasn't panned out with, with research. You know, it basically is sort of saying that like the FMS is, it's reproducible inside of itself. You know, and it tells you information about itself, but that information is not really transferable to any tasks outside of itself. So it's it's just not particularly valuable in terms of it telling you anything. And um, and and you know, I I don't I'm not I don't have the exact authors in in my head, and I can't quote the the exact study, but like. I've seen it. I've had people share it with me, like the, the different research pieces that basically have been fairly condemning of, of that particular screen. 
And, um, and I just think it's still, it's still a very pervasive model that, that exists. And, and there's people that will tell you, well, you know, this research isn't like the point of it was to be a screen. It was never meant to be a diagnostic, blah, blah, blah. But it, the point of the research was that it's not even really accurate as a screen. Like, uh, there was research that came out a long time ago saying that like, uh, guys in the NFL that scored under, you know, there's seven tests and the, the, each test is one to three. Uh, so anybody that was under a 14, I believe was, um, or, you know, they had, they had ones or asymmetries. Um, you know, they were 50% more likely to get hurt from non-contact injuries. Unfortunately, that, that research has just never been reproducible. Like it seems to have been like noise statistically and, and not something that's, that's actually panned out. And so it, it like guys that suck on the FMS and the NFL, they don't get hurt any more likely than they, they have no more likelihood of getting hurt non-contact than other guys, you know? So it's, it's just that it's, it's, it's more complicated than that. Like it's, it's not, it's not enough information to actually be able to change your approach on anything. And, and the other thing with the FMS is it, it has zero frontal plane assessments and the SFMA doesn't either. And, and people would make this argument, oh, well, a single leg stance is triplanar. Um, I mean, I suppose anything is when you really get down to it. But, but just by putting you on one leg doesn't mean that, that it's any more triplanar than anything else. And, and it could be triplanar, but it could also just be god-awful planar, like no planar. Uh, and that's, that's what I'm trying to get at is do you want to see what a frontal plane actually is? It's, it's this where like there's this center of mass shift over a single foot and you see the pelvis uh, raise on the side that you're standing on and you see the rib cage drop on the side that you're standing on. And, and when that happens, you have this relationship of joints uh, to each other in a zero-sum phenomenon of like abduction, 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 going up the chain. Um, and, and then when you actually position the person like that, they'll tell you right away, like, oh, my God, my adductor and my glute, my abs are going crazy. And, um, you know, it's cool when you're in the seminar and you actually like, hey, this person is going to tell you that they feel their adductor. Oh, they don't feel it? Well, it's because their pelvis is shifted. It's not over their foot. It kind of leaked out the side. Let's get this pelvis over the foot, and now all of a sudden this person is is screaming at you because their adductor mm-hmm. just lit up like a Christmas tree. Yeah, that the, the frontal plane has definitely been at the top of um, my list of things I'm really actively observing with athletes and, and trying to form my own process well there as well as you know the information that you shared, everything the big patterns being so helpful. Something that was really funny that I, I really had a good chuckle at that I you said was uh, that the people who have a good frontal plane are usually the more attractive people. You had the model on yeah. the statue of David. Uh, that was uh, that that was definitely a good one. And uh, but yeah, I, I it it's, it is an interesting world. It, and I thought I heard this somewhere that like LeBron James had one of the worst like FMS scores ever. He got like a I don't know what he got, but I mean I definitely yeah, can't like, see that guy passing <laughs> the deep squad. There's no way. There's, no there's, there's no, no chance. Way. And and I don't think he should. And um, you know I, I I won't I won't throw names out or anything like that because it's it's not appropriate to do with pro sports and. But like a, a very older NBA player who's, who's still in the league, who, who, you know, used to be able to jump out of the gym and, um, and do like some of the most spectacular highlight real things, who's, who's still in the league, 
and still like, you know, trained super hard, you know, he's, he's like literally the stiffest human being you'll ever see. And again, like one of these guys that his dorsiflexion is still plantar flexion. You know, it's like there, there is no, there's no dorsiflexion on this dude. And, and it's like, why can this guy jump so well? Uh, well, it's probably because of how stiff everything is from a muscle mm -hmm. tendon unit perspective. There's like this guy hits the ground and it's like a super ball. And it, like, okay, you want to tell me that like this guy isn't robust and resilient? Like he's hardly ever been on the, the DL and he's, he's going into his 40s, you know? So it's like, um, you know, you got to rethink these things. Like his active straight leg raise is like almost non-existent. So it's, it's, it, it doesn't pan out. And, and at a certain point, you got to call a spade a spade. And, and I, you know, I'm just not really afraid to. Like, I have no allegiances in this industry. I, have, I don't have a horse in the race, so to speak. So I, I don't really care. I just think that it's, it's like I just like the truth. I like pushing people's buttons. And, like, usually, like, I do that a lot on social media. And then people meet me in person. And they're like, oh, you're not nearly as much of a jerk as, you, as I thought you were. <laughs> But, um, you know, I, I, I like good dialogue, and I just think that, like, if, if you're too boring and you never, like, actually uh, speak your opinion because you're, you're afraid of backlash from, from like, big-timers in this industry, well, don't, you're, you're just being too safe. Like, you're just staying at home in your little cave, and, like, you're, you're, you're scared. And, and I try not to be scared, and, and when I look out at things and observe it, <clears throat> I try to just say what I think I see. I see. And, and sometimes I get burned, but, you know, usually other people are like, you know, I'm kind of thinking the same thing. And uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I thought I was crazy and I didn't want to say anything. So that, that's just sort of where I'm at. Like that, I just think it's time to move on from that model and, um, and, and just have a little bit more respect for when the empirical process says that, hey, this thing's not doing what, what they said it was going to do. They, they, that group has already made enough money. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. let's, let's move on. They, they're, they're, um, there's better stuff out there. Yeah. No, I, that's something I spend a lot of time thinking <laughs> on. I, I'm a guy who kind of got into the strength and conditioning industry in kind of a different way and didn't really even have any formal mentors. And as I, uh, the more years I had gone through it though, is I always had kind of wondered, well, why, and I'm always the person who asks why, like, why do we, why do we want this? Why do we want this? And one of the things I think about too, and, and I think this is a cool question is, uh, we hear muscle activation a lot, like this mm. muscle's weak. Let's make it strong. You're, you need to go throw the ball. So go crank, warm up your rotator cuff, activate your rotator cuff or whatever. Uh, what's your, what's your take on muscle activation? And I think too, I, mean, I know people ask a lot about various muscle activation systems type things. And yeah. uh, what's your take on uh, weak muscles or activating muscles prior to uh, yeah. movement or things like that? You know, it's, a, it's super timely. I actually, um, like Joe Bonnier is a strength coach, a uh, personal trainer that's that's in the Northeast here. And he's somebody that I, I've known for a while. I, I love the guy. He um, he was at Springfield College with me when I was a student. Like I was in um, the ex-phys program. He was in the strength and conditioning program. We were in a couple classes together. And um, really good dude and just a hell of a coach too. Like I can remember, you know, I, I was at Springfield College for a number of years three years as a student, three years as a professor. So I got to see six years worth of like master's students and, and grad assistants coaching teams in the, in the Springfield college weight room. And a number of these guys have gone on and had really stellar careers. And, you know, I, I still think when it comes to pure coaching, Joe Bonnier is one of the best coaches 
I have ever seen. And like you watch him command a team or a group of individuals and, and get them to execute exactly what he's looking for. And he's second to none. And, um, you know, he had this post last night uh, talking about like just questioning activation, inhibition and fatigue and um, and just sort of saying, like, hey, if if I'm trying to activate this muscle and I do these drills, like, am I am I really activating it or am I inhibiting something else or am I actually fatiguing it? Like, does any of this stuff make any sense? And there was some some great comments in there. and I, I couldn't help it. Like, I. I've, I've kind of backed away from writing stuff on social media for the most part, like, uh, cause it can just suck you in and be a huge time waste. But with, with somebody like that, I feel like it'll lead to good dialogue. And I was kind of sharing my thoughts on it. And, and one of those thoughts is, is essentially that, um, you know, I, I think that with complex phenomena and, and I think that biological movement is an incredibly complex phenomena. Um, I think that there can be multiple correct answers happening at the same time. And I think sometimes those multiple correct answers can actually be almost contradictory to one another. And, and I think that at a certain point as an adult, like it's almost like politics. You, you have to get to the point where, where you understand that like your thought processes and your beliefs, they're, they're yours. And like, you can, and somebody else can have exact opposite beliefs and, and thought processes. And, and it's not like yours are necessarily more correct than theirs. They're just your, your understanding of the world. And, and the other person isn't a bad person because they have different beliefs. They, their beliefs could be equally right. It's such a matter of perspective. And, and with these things, there's, there's just multiple pathways and operating systems and um, it, it actually defies our ability as a species to truly, fully understand. And um, so I just think we've got, we've got all these camps out there from the movement world. And, and, and I, I almost shy away from discussing movement sometimes because I don't want to get sucked into like these debates between, oh, there's the functional patterns guy and he talks this stuff. And then there's the DNS people and they're talking this stuff and the FMS people and the PRI people. And like, like what kind of person are you? And I'm like, I, man, I don't, I'm not an anybody person. Like I'm just, I'm just a guy looking to get results with people and, and I'll try to explain it. But for the most part, like if I get the outcome I'm looking for, I'm just happy with it. And I'm like, I'm almost good to go. And I'm on, <laughs> like, I don't even want to talk about it. Like, uh, so it's, it's kind of like this, this realm of like activation or inhibition, like, I, to me, it's kind of like, what's what's the closest thing I can come up with with, with a scientific answer for this crap? And, and I would say it ultimately kind of is discussed at the level of like, um, you know, synapses talking to other synapses, like either at the level of, um, of the central nervous system with one neuron talking to another neuron or at the level of the neuromuscular junction with the neuron talking to the postsynaptic uh, muscle. And... And it just comes down to like excitatory versus inhibitory neurotransmitters. And um, at the level of the CNS, we typically talk about things like like dopamine or glutamate or, um, you know, uh, what, what do you call it? Like uh, acetylcholine or GABA as being like our primary topics. And like GABA seems to always be the inhibitory substance uh, and the other ones are excitatory. Like and, and usually to, ease, to simplify the discussion, you just talk acetylcholine versus GABA. Uh, you got acetylcholine that's excitatory, 
And what do we mean by excitatory? Like every time acetylcholine travels from the presynaptic neuron to the postsynaptic neuron or muscle, what will happen is if I can get enough of that acetylcholine to bind to its receptors, at some point I'm going to open sodium channels and sodium is going to move from outside the cell to inside the cell. Sodium is positively charged, so sodium would quote unquote activate the muscle um, or excite the muscle. Now at the level of the neuromuscular junction, there is no inhibitory process, none. It's acetylcholine, there is no GABA at the level of the muscles. Uh, so at, at that point when I get to the muscle itself, there's only facilitation, there's only activation, whatever words you want to call it. I just have to get the charge up high enough. So whenever we're talking about this stuff in terms of inhibition or activation or ex excitation, it's always a central nervous system discussion. Mm -hmm. All right, and, and that's just going to come down to like, uh, you know, really just less pre to post synaptic discussion. And, and really, the, it, it comes down to, and you can get a lot more about this, even from, from listening to Robert Sapolsky talk about long-term potentiation, LTP. That, that really is the name of the game when it comes to this, purely from the discussion of, of, um, of excitation or inhibition. And that is largely a glutamate-driven phenomenon from a neurotransmitter standpoint. And, and he'll talk about it from the level of like students in a classroom with a professor. And it's kind of like, you know, you'll, you'll, let's say you're taking stats or, or another class that's like, it's almost like you're learning a new language, you know? And the first time that you hear a topic or a, a something brought up, it's, it just goes right over your head. Like you have no idea what the person's talking about. But it, if they keep repeating it, if there's repetition, if there's different methods of trying to explain to you what something is um, at certain point you have that light bulb moment and what's going on there is that like you know uh, you've got glutamate being released from the presynaptic side it's traveling into this you know trough between the two neurons it's reaching the postsynaptic side and there's two different kinds of glutamate receptors you got a type one and a type two uh, the type one is sort of like uh, the, the key one is the type 2 one. If, if you can get the type 2 one to be activated, you're going to cause this rush of calcium, which is doubly positively charged, to come into the cell. Uh, but you need to get enough type 1 receptors filled with glutamate, and then all of a sudden you kind of flip a mechanism that opens the type 2, and then once you have the type 2 opened and they're starting to bind with glutamate, Boom, you have this enormous cascade response and this huge jump in facilitation and, ch and charge. And that's, that's what they talk about is the light bulb moment. Now, motor learning is no different. You're looking for LTP. And this is like when you really get into the science of neuroplasticity, it's the same damn thing. This is, this is the show is LTP. So it's, it's kind of like I, I need to like – teach this person this new move and they have no idea what the hell it is I'm trying to show them. And this is like what I run into in like rethinking the big patterns, trying to teach people a frontal plane. You know, I had the guy on the table that like, I'm like, Hey, what do you feel? And he's like, I, I don't know. And then like after two minutes, he's like, well, I've been feeling my inner thigh this whole time. And I'm like, damn it. Why didn't you tell me that? That was the whole point here. And then, then he got it and he had this light bulb moment. 
But, you know, it's, it's the same thing. You're trying to teach people a, a mechanical skill. They have no idea. They just don't get it. Like, what are you trying to say? And then all of a sudden, boom, they get the idea. Now, the, the key with this, this, this two-receptor glutamate phenomenon is once you have triggered this second receptor to open, you have increased the sensitivity of the postsynaptic side to the glutamate uh, in a semi-permanent fashion. You have to keep doing it repeatedly, you know what I mean, almost like immersion therapy for a little while. But once the postsynaptic side has learned this mechanism, it will hold on to that mechanism. And you could stop doing the task for a couple of weeks, come back to it, and they will immediately get it. <clears throat> so to me, like it, this discussion about activation or inhibition is such a wild goose chase on a fool's errand when you talk about like, oh, I'm going to do like these band drills before and before this so that I facilitate or I activate like my glute mead. That to me sounds like someone like a dog chasing its own tail uh, because they have not learned the mechanism for how glute mead actually works. Because if they did, they wouldn't have to keep doing the same drill over and over again. Um, it's like how many times do you have to learn how to do a jump shot in basketball? Maybe your first one's a little bit rusty, but just take like three or four of them and you're probably like pretty good to go and just heat your body up. Uh, and now like, do you remember how to execute a crossover dribble? It just shouldn't be so redundant in our industry. A warm-up does not need to take 20 minutes with the same foam rolling drills and the same like band psoas drills and walking band lateral walks and all this kind of stuff. Like if, if you're still doing it, you haven't learned the thing. And, um, and that just kind of drives me crazy. But, you know, I, I still want to do drills in the beginning that prepare the person for more intense training. I just think that if you do the right drill, and it probably just comes down to doing one or two of them, that person is ready to go. And I don't have to waste as much time. Like, if, if, if people take almost anything away from rethinking the big patterns, it's you can stop wasting time on these elaborate warm-ups that like, oh, I'm, I'm mobilizing my big toe. Well, if you're doing that, you probably miss the big picture. Um, unless you're in like a big toe wrestling sport or something like that. <laughs> and, and that's like the, the big outcome that you're looking for. Understand the big relationships of like the major skeletal axial, axial skeleton bones of the body. And if you get those things in the right position, typically the person, it, it's like they're working hard right from the beginning. You know, I, when, I, when I took the, the one guy and like had him, had him tell me about like the, the last workout he did with somebody and he was sort of showing the world's greatest stretch and it was like, hey, let's take this world's greatest stretch and actually give it some, some competencies in the planes. And I, I mean, that guy looked like he had gone through a full workout, but, but he was prepared to, to start doing some stuff. He was prepared to really start doing the things that, that lead to adaptations like running, jumping, throwing, and lifting. Um, so, so it's just like, Hey, I want to, I have limited time with people. I need to get to the big boys and I want to still do those big boys. Right. And I want to make sure that my assistance work is really dialed in and I start paying attention to whether or not I'm training qualities in, in certain planes and stances. But if you can do anything like learn how to prune your tree down to a much smaller level so that you waste zero time in the training process. 
Yeah, I, I I think that's really good stuff. I love how you brought in just the skill the skill element of it too, rather than muscle strong, weak, black and white. That's it. It's there's there's a higher order to things and how the brain processes it all. And I think that's awesome stuff, Pat. I, I know our, our time's up today, um, but totally enjoyed chatting with you again, man. Thanks for coming back on the show and uh, thanks for answering my questions. It was really good. Oh uh, yeah, Joel, man, this is great. We get, hopefully can do this again. And and uh, it was awesome seeing you in San Fran and um you know just a it was a great experience and I, I appreciate also like some of the really good questions you had in there and like the contributions that you and everybody in that audience brought because that was such a strong room to present in front of and it really for me just led to like even a better understanding of this stuff which is why I try to teach this stuff in the first place Thanks for tuning in to another episode. Enjoy you guys listening to this show. And it's been a blessing to have guests of just such uh, intelligence and breadth of knowledge across the spectrum, uh, across these 122 episodes that we've put together. Uh, please, as always, visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end trading technology. If you enjoyed the show, don't hesitate. Leave us a rating or review. We'd really appreciate it. And we will see you guys next week with another great guest. Have a good one.